this interview was supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Beatrice. Beatrice had no role in the selection of the topics or the selection of the speakers and has not vetted or reviewed the content of any of the interviews. The views expressed by speakers are their own and may not necessarily represent the views of the IMS. Hello, I'm Dr. Marla Shapiro and I'm so pleased to be with you today. I sit on the board of directors of the International Menopause Society. And today I'm joined by a fellow board member, well known to many of us, Dr. Wendy Wolfman from Canada. Wendy, can you please introduce yourself to all our healthcare practitioners who are watching us? Thanks, Marla. And thanks the International Menopause Society for um, allowing me to speak to you today. And I'm director of the Menopause and the Premature Ovarian Insufficiency Clinic at the uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, University of Toronto. I'm a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto. I'm president of the Canadian Menopause Society and a proud board member of the International Menopause Society. So I'm gonna pick your brain for some of the most common things that plague me with my perimenopausal women. So the first thing I'm gonna start with is how do we determine what's considered abnormal bleeding in the perimenopause? Because often the perimenopause is so determined by these irregular periods. How do we know when this is just perimenopause or where we really need to be doing more? Thanks so much for that question, because I think it's a huge dilemma when you're looking after perimenopausal women, because we know that the hallmark of getting closer to the menopause and the stages of reproductive aging in women is abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, typically, when women start having a change of more than seven days um, and cycles will get closer, the follicular phase shortens as the brain is driving the most resistant follicles to um, release estrogen. And sometimes you get more than one follicle being developed. So you may get um, changes in the luteal phase and this can cause abnormal bleeding. So really it's any amount of bleeding um, which interferes with physical, social and emotional um, life in a woman and we look at things like um, the frequency of bleeding, how often is the bleeding occurring? Like if it's occurring less than 24 days, uh, that might be considered abnormal. Um, also, some people say 21 days. Um, also, uh, we look at how the bleeding is occurring. Is it occurring intermenstrually, which isn't normal? Uh, is it occurring after intercourse? That's not normal. Um, the amount, is it very heavy? So soaking a pad an hour for more than five hours, uh, having accidents, uh, which are different than what a woman's used to, like um, having to wear, let's say three forms of protection, uh, having accidents at work with big clots or accidents into the bed, that's not considered normal. Developing anemia with respect to menses, because if you have very heavy periods over a period of time, you will become anemic. And in some women who are having very, very heavy bleeding, that can actually necessitate an emergency visit. But one of the so, most important things is to make sure that a woman's not pregnant right from the get-go. Yeah, very important. So are there ways in which we can logically sort of categorize these differences that can help direct us in terms of the way we think about this? Right, so since about 2007, we've had a very logical approach 
to managing abnormal uterine bleeding in the perimenopause. And that's a mnemonic called POMCOIN. And it mm -hmm. divides the etiological factors into structural causes. So POM would refer to polyps, adenomyosis, uh, leiomyoma, and malignancy. And then the non-structural causes, which are the COIN, C-O-E-I-N, which is coagulation, ovulation, endometrial, iatrogenic, and not yet uh, categorized. Mm. So for etiology, um, those are the things we're thinking about. So then that's very, very helpful. Does it help us to guide our subsequent investigations? So if we look at primary care, how far can primary care take sort of some basic investigations before referral may be necessary? So it does in a way, but we go back to first principles. So the first thing is making sure someone's not pregnant because right. you can get pregnant as long as you're still menstruating and making sure that the patient is using contraception. So we go back to the first principles, which is the good history, the gynecological history, good medical history, medication history, family history, um, and then moving on to a very careful physical examination, including uh, vital signs, checking for anemia, palpation of the thyroid, um, the abdomen, looking at the vulva and the urethra, because remember that you can have bleeding related to vulvar cancer and urethral problems. And don't forget that uh, there are other organ systems that we all forget, but they are in the same area, including the bladder and the rectum and anus. Uh, so always think about that. Um, then you move on, check the vagina, the cervix, uh, consider doing cultures because women are sexually active. They may have new sexual partners. Um, make sure pap tests are up to date. Do your pap tests. And in um, most jurisdictions, um, people would do an endometrial biopsy or they might do an ultrasound first and then decide whether they need to do a biopsy. Um, but typically that's something we do. And then deciding uh, based on that, if there are other diagnostic procedures that need to be done. Um, so the additional things that we often do are something called um, an, a saline infusion sonography to look right. and see if there are any intracavitary lesions, or now we have the opportunity to do um, office hysteroscopy where we can put a little camera in and actually see if there are polyps or, or submucosal fibroids. We don't always do those procedures. Uh, we determine to do them if based on the history and the basic examination. Well, the pregnancy comment is so important because you know the arbitrary thought, oh, I'm in my 40s, I'm in my 50s, my patient's not gonna get pregnant, doesn't always hold true. So that first basic of, of doing a good history and physical and ruling out a pregnancy is really something that we should not you know, forget about. So let's look at now in terms of um, the treatments for these particular type of women, not women who are menopausal and then bleed, but the women in this perimenopausal period of time. So also, if you could comment about the use of oral contraceptives in age as well. Right, so um, it, obviously the treatment depends on what's wrong. Right. So, but many times we will try and manage things uh, medically first before we move to surgical therapies. So we have a huge number of 
tool uh, tools in our toolkit to treat heavy bleeding. And if it's heavy, regular bleeding, um, if a patient's anemic, obviously adding iron, um, but you can add an NSAID or an antiprostaglandic, and the benefit is about 25%. Hmm. And then we have tranexamic acid, which really is a tremendous help in this sort of situation. It's administered only on the days when the woman has heavy bleeding. So it's a very useful adjuvant. We can use oral contraceptives in a woman with no increased risk factors who does not smoke, really um, into her 50s, her early 50s, um, depending on the jurisdiction in which you live in, even up to age 54. Um, uh, if someone has no risk factors, that's a possibility. One of the booms that we've had uh, in the last few years is the use of a progesterone intrauterine right. device. And that often will really help the bleeding and some women actually may become amenorrheic with that. So that's really been a huge help. And even for older women, some women uh, in some places we would recommend um, a progesterone uh, type of contraceptive, which can also help people, progestin-only pills mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and POP. And those also can help the bleeding, but sometimes people will have erratic spotting with those medications. An older medication is Depo-Provera, which also can be used, but sometimes women will gain weight on that medication and therefore um, they won't like it. And there's an older medication, Danazole, which we in general tend not to use, but it also can work quite well. Lots of tools in the so, toolbox. And then we have uh, lastly, GNRH antagonists and agonists. Um, and if we use them more than six months, we usually give ADBAC therapy, but sometimes you can hold women off with that medication until their last menstrual period. Uh, so they won't require surgery if, let's say, they have adenomyosis or they have fibroids and they want to avoid any type of surgical therapy. And lastly, before I let you go, so, you know, we have women that are now firmly established menopause, so it's been more than a year uh, since they've had a menstrual bleed and they show up in our office. Sometimes they don't even tell you unless you ask. And after a year, they have a menstrual bleed. So for these women... Clearly, they represent a different group of women. Do the investigations differ for them, aside from obviously the appropriate history and physical, but in terms of the actual investigations, what would guide you? Thanks so much for that question, Marla. So we take postmenopausal bleeding very seriously. Statistically, when any woman comes in with a single episode or, or they have some uh, postmenopausal bleeding, that patient's risk of uterine cancer, which is growing in um, its prevalence, is about 10%, depending on the study you read. In certain groups of women, historically, they're more at risk for uterine cancer. So in women who are overweight, in women who don't have children, in women who have diabetes, uh, women with a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome, women who have a late menopause, uh, and women who have a family history of colon cancer and uterine cancer and may carry the Lynch gene, um, they are more at risk for uterine cancer. And so we have to go back to principles, again, taking a good history, 
uh, looking at medication the same way we would investigate anybody. But usually in this group of patients, uh, we would want some definitive endometrial sampling right. uh, in the best way that we could get it. And if we get an insufficient sample, then we have to pursue more, th more investigations to make sure that we have a tissue diagnosis. Well, thank you so much for being here and walking us through the world of menopause and bleeding. Thanks a lot.